Hi friends, my name is Jess and this is The Dirt Road Democrat. On this episode, I'll be talking to Jennifer Berkshire. She is co-author of a new book called A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. I'll talk to her about her new book and also what in the world is going on with school privatization. This show is brought to you by the Heartland Pod and our Patreon supporters. To learn more and join us, go to heartlandpod.com and click the Patreon link to get signed up to support this show and others in the Heartland Pod family to get bonus content and special access for events. You can follow me on social media. On Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm Piper from Missouri. On TikTok, you can find me at Jess Piper Mo. And also be sure to follow the Heartland Pod on all accounts. Oh my gosh, y'all, I am so excited about today's show. I'm interviewing a lady named Jennifer Berkshire. She is from Massachusetts, and I learned about her when I found her podcast. It's called Have You Heard? And it's she and her co-host, Jack Schneider, and they talk about education, education across the country. They talk about teachers and teaching, and lately, a lot of it has been about the privatization movement. She and Jack co-authored a book called A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, and I cannot recommend this book enough. It opened my eyes. It led me back to the history. I mean, going back to FDR and the New Deal, like what in the world is going on and why is it happening now? So a little more about Jennifer. She writes about education and politics for the nation and in the New Republic and also for the Washington Post. She's the creator and co-host of the education policy podcast, Have You Heard? She teaches aspiring podcasters, maybe I need to enroll in this class, in the journalism program program at Boston College. And again, she co-authored the book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. I can't wait to introduce you to Jennifer. Thanks everybody for joining me for another um, edition of Dirt Road Democrat. And today I have a fantastic uh, person who has been in, in the front lines of educational reform. She's talked about it. She's written about it. She has a podcast called Have You Heard, which is where I heard Jennifer for the first time. And I was just like, man, this is something that all of us need to be listening to, whether you're in education or not. But Jennifer, um, just Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in educational policies. Yeah, so um, you and I have something in common. I am from the heartland. Um, I grew up in the next state over. That would be Illinois. And I spent a lot of time in your home state of Missouri. And then I ended up on the East Coast. I married what's known out here as a mass hole. That cannot be a real term, Jennifer. You clearly have never been here. <laughs> so I I really didn't know anything about public education, except that I had experienced a lot of it. I went to K-12, and then I went to college and grad school, always at, at, at public institutions. And then I ended up getting a job out here for the state, one of the statewide teachers unions. I edited their newspaper, and it meant that I got to travel all around visiting schools, and urban schools in particular. And this was at a moment, and you may remember it, where education reform was really kind of a democratic thing. Yeah. And what, what struck me is that 
when I listened to what they were saying, I heard an awful lot of conservative causes being proposed as the solutions to what was ailing our public schools. And this fascinated me. How did how did Democrats settle on these as the solutions? I wanted to know more. So I started digging around, asking questions, learning my history. And what I discovered was you really didn't have to dig very far before you encountered some much older right-wing ideas that seem to lead us in a very radical direction. So I feel like you are about to tell us the story of how we arrived here. And oftentimes people will ask me, and I think about it myself, what in the world is going on? What has happened? And as you're alluding to, it hasn't just happened. It's been happening. Can you tell us about that? I think that that's such a good point that, you know, when we're when we talk about our public schools, we tend to think of them in a sort of bubble that, you know, somehow education is separate from everything else that's happening in the country, even though, you know, it's clearly like 90% of the kids attend public schools, it's the largest line item and every state budget. But what I noticed is, as I started digging around was that this was actually a really old cause. And that when you looked into what somebody like a Betsy DeVos was unhappy about, it wasn't just that she was unhappy. It was that her parents and the family she had married into, that they had basically been unhappy since the New Deal. Now, that's a really long time ago, but it represents the, the largest concerted effort in our country's uh, history to to redistribute wealth and strengthen the role of the government in order to shore up the safety net. And so the when you look at so many of the folks who are leading the charge today through their foundations, through their enormous web of interconnected organizations, you will often find some grudge that dates back to the New Deal. And they have been, you know, sort of chipping away ever since. And I think what a lot of people miss is that, you know, when we think about the Koch brothers and we're down to one brother now, mm-hmm. you know, we we know that that they they are hostile to regulation, that, you know, that they want to see uh, business get the freest hand possible. But we tend to miss the fact that their top priority is actually getting rid of public education. And that's because public education represents so many of the things that these folks don't like. Our taxes pay for it. It's a huge social safety net program, right? You get to attend public schools, even if you weren't born in this country, even if you don't have legal status. And finally, and most importantly, public schools are really where kids' expectations are set. Teachers, and you know this so well because you were a teacher, your job is to get them to think bigger and aim higher. Well, if your view of the world is that we need the country to be less equal, that we need people to have fewer rights, that we need to be less of a democracy, you don't want kids to aim higher. You don't want them thinking that they're entitled to more. You actually want to see their horizons shrink. And I know that's such a grim vision, but I think what people are experiencing right now is that, yeah, actually, it is a grim vision. 
So in Missouri, there are Republicans in my state house who are constantly attacking public education, who are who have been defunding it for over a decade, who purposely pay teachers 50th in the nation. And, you know, we're 49th in educational funding. And what you describe strikes me. But at the same time, Jennifer, do you think the people in my state house understand that history and and where it comes from and when when they say why they are defunding schools they don't have any of what you were just talking about so i wonder we're seeing this in red states across the country is this um state lawmakers just uh, taking donor money and doing what they're told or do they understand what they are actually doing in your opinion that's such a good question because I think it's important to acknowledge that there, you know, this is a big tent right now. There are a lot of people in it. So you've got people on the extreme end in almost all of these states. You can find somebody who's filing a bill to make to, to say that public education will no longer be compulsory. You won't have to attend anymore. Like, think about that. That is a far out vision of the world. So that reflects sort of one viewpoint. Then you have your anti-tax folks. And you have a lot of them in Missouri. You have very wealthy and powerful people in Missouri who want to basically phase out taxes. So a lot of the folks that you're hearing in the state house just represent that point of view. Now, these days, you've got a lot of folks who are in sort of the culture war wing, and they have, you know, become convinced some of them, you know, some of them, it's, uh, it's, it's just cynical. Um, but there are some true believers out there who really believe that that kids are being indoctrinated and that the way that we can measure that is the fact that they are turning against Republicans. They look at something like the number of young people who voted for Bernie, for example. They look at the way that young people voted in the midterms. And to them, this is, you know, where is this coming from? It's not coming from the from their families. It's got to be coming from somewhere else. It's coming from the schools. Now, I think what's really interesting is that not so long ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, a lot of these same folks would have been marching in lockstep behind the idea that the role of public schools in a place like Missouri was to produce good workers for business. And so it would have been your local businesses and, and corporations that were calling the shots about what happens in schools. Well, now they've really swung in a different direction. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see in all of these states, at what point does the business community start to wake up and say, uh, wait a second, what about us? Exactly. Um, I've just finished your book, uh, The Wolf at the, at the Schoolhouse Door, and I absolutely enjoyed every bit of it. Um, I listened to it on audiobook because I'm lazy these days, but it was fantastic. And you talked about uh, a big chunk of it. Really, you talked about the rise of big money groups trying to privatize public schools. So it, you you just spoke about, you know, business leaders and, and businesses in Missouri and what they need in an educated populace. Is that the same thing um, that these big money groups need? You talked about the, the Cokes or the Coke <laughs> these days and also Betsy DeVos. What is the deal with these groups trying to privatize public schools? Well, so I think I see so often people who see the kinds of laws that are being passed or being debated and that their go-to explanation 
of what's happening is that, oh, this is just driven by corporate greed. These are people who want to cash in on the public schools and they're just, you know, they're mad about the fact that it's, you know, it's public money that they they can't get. There is definitely some truth to this. If you think about the about big voucher programs that are being passed, and I know this is something that's being debated in Missouri. So, you know, there is, you know, the vision is clearly to make money at every step of the way. And so, you know, instead of a publicly funded, quote unquote, government school, perhaps kids in rural Missouri would attend a for-profit micro school, right? That someone there is cashing in because instead of a trained teacher, your kids are being looked after by a guide who who earns not much more than the minimum wage. They're paid per head um, based on the number of kids who sign up and the kids themselves learn online. There's no training needed. There's some basic safety protocols. So you think about like, well, there's quite a bit of money um, or the voucher programs typically don't pay the full freight of the private schools. So there's an opening for a new loan market. And all along the way, you'll see that that there's some opportunity to cash in, even in an area that's relatively hard to make money off of because kids are expensive to educate. But the single biggest windfall comes from not having to pay taxes. And that is where you always find the overlap, that the same people who are arguing for an unregulated school choice marketplace are also against the idea that our taxpayers, that taxpayers pay for it. Um, so we always make the point that these voucher programs, while they're going to be an, you know, an enormous budget buster in the short term, the, you know, the long-term goal is not to spend the same amount on schools, but have it go to somebody else. It's to have you pay for it yourself, just the way that you are now expected to pay for your kid's college. Support this show and all of the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 per month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels heartlandpod.com. Click the Patreon link or just go to Patreon and search for the Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. And now back to the show. That is so scary. I don't know if people have thought about the fact that there is maybe a market coming up for K through 12 um, loans. Uh, and that's truly terrifying. Have you seen, I have seen this myself, but I wonder if you have too, have you seen schools accepting state vouchers that outright discriminate against children, uh, children's parents, uh, kids with learning disabilities, social emotional issues? Have you seen that? Uh, absolutely. So this summer, uh, a Christian school in Florida sent around a letter to parents and said, too bad, so sad. If your kid is LGBTQ, they're not welcome here anymore because that conflicts with our religious values. And this is a school that accepts $1.6 million a year in taxpayer money through Florida's ginormous voucher program. And what's so, you know, what's so amazing, and I think frankly shocking to a lot of us is how open these schools are. And so the next time, you know, it's we've just passed through school choice week. And so they had endless public events 
at these private schools. And you could just go to the school website, click on their handbook, and the school would tell you in no uncertain terms, you know, we reserve the right to reject students who don't accept our worldview. Um, here are the special needs that we do not accommodate. And I think what, you know, people have grown so used to this rhetoric about funding students, not systems, that they forget that, you know, government schools, you know, part of the government part is that's what the rights are attached to. Your constitutional rights, your kids' civil rights are attached to that public institution. And once you start shifting them into a private system, they do not have the same rights. And really, you know, the ability to make the choice about who to accept and who to reject falls, you know, within the power of the school. We're, we have an episode of our podcast coming out this week that I think is one of the most alarming ones we've done, um, that the Supreme Court is, it looks like, is shaping up to hear a case about whether charter schools are really public. And, and all the indications are that the Supreme Court will say that no, charter schools are actually non-state actors. And this particular case alleges that students who attend a charter school in North Carolina are not covered by the equal protection part of the, the 14th Amendment. So we could suddenly be looking at enormous numbers of kids who do not have rights um, including the really essential rights that you were talking about that cover special education. And I see that a lot. And, you know, I'm in a rural area. I'm, I'm in a town of 480 people. My daughter is in a class where the entire fifth grade is 17 kids. And people say to me all the time, well, a voucher would work perfect for you because then you could take your daughter wherever you wanted. But they don't understand that the closest high school is 60 miles from me, the closest one that, you know, would accept a voucher that is private and religious. So in Missouri, we're passing something called open enrollment, which will absolutely decimate these small schools um, because, you know, people will probably, and I didn't think about this. My husband is a football coach. And I was like, well, will people really pull their kids out, you know, to go to, say, Maryville for academics? And he said, yes, half the people, it's not going to be about academics. It's going to be about football. Spoof hounds, they win state championships. You know, people are going to be pulling their kids out for that. But as a teacher, um, I was a member of MNEA, and I was the only person in my building that, that was represented by the union. So in rural parts of of every state, I would imagine, I was covered under um, MSTA, which is a it's almost like a teacher's club. They didn't, you know, uh, organize. They didn't bargain for benefits or pay. Um, but what is what do you think the role is of the teachers union in privatizing public schools? And also, is that a part of privatizing public schools, trying to relieve schools of teacher unions? Oh, absolutely. So there, like, there is nothing that these folks dislike more than teachers unions. Um, but we're, you know, we're so used to the kind of Obama era rhetoric about, you know, that like, if we could just get better teachers into the kid in front of the kids, if we could just weed out the bad apples, this was going to be the thing that closed the achievement gap and, and allowed us to soar internationally. This was going to be so great. So we're used to hearing the teachers union really villainized as an op as an obstacle to academic progress. That is not what we're talking about here. 
uh, conservatives and conservative libertarians in particular are they, the reason that they dislike teachers unions so much is that teachers unions are the primary vehicle for advocating for a stronger social safety net. They advocate for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with schools, uh, including higher minimum wages and more generous health care. And so if you could knock them out, it makes it much easier to either, you know, get rid of social programs that cost money or to, you know, ensure that they don't come into being in the first place. And so something like expanding Medicaid, like technically that's out of the purview of teachers unions, except that it benefits kids. And so you'll often find them right there lobbying, using their numbers because they're typically the largest organized force. So yes, you are absolutely right that that this is, this is a big part of why they're such a target. Even if the rhetoric around why they're hated shifts from decade to decade. Right. And so this is happening, the voucher schemes, the going after teachers unions, the um, calling teachers all kinds of names, indoctrinators, having litter boxes, groomers, all these things are happening all around me, Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska, Oklahoma. And these are all red states. So is it just a red state phenomena or is it is it spreading? Oh, it's it's not uh, just a red state phenomenon. And I can't tell you how frustrating it is when I hear people who, you know, live in Massachusetts telling me, you know, like, well, we're so fortunate. We're so lucky that, you know, like we're not having to deal with this. But, you know, the same uh, you're you're seeing the the same kinds of lawsuits, for example, um, uh, that target that target transgender kids and the parents of transgender kids popping up in Massachusetts. I think what makes the blue state situation a little bit different is that the, the targets of the culture war are often affluent parents whose you know, fondest dream is that their kids will attend Ivy League institutions. And so they are focusing enormous amounts of energy, time, and money to make sure that, that you know, their youngster gets everything they need to win the kind of meritocratic race. And so you will hear them being uh, targeted by Republicans in particular, that, you know, like you should be opposed to school district equity plans because this, you know, this is a war on merit. So it is like we hear different arguments being made, but definitely like the, the same kinds of bills are being introduced. They just don't tend to go anywhere. Um, but but we're absolutely seeing it here, too. So we're getting close to the end of the segment, but at the end of your book, you were very um, poignant and you pointed out the fact that, you know, is it hopeless? Because I, I feel sometimes because I am constantly looking at legislation that will hurt everyone around me. I don't see things coming through to fix our roads, you know, to pay the teachers more, to make sure that our post office and our hospitals stay open. Um, so I wonder, one, what can we do? And lastly, a bit of hope. Is there hope in this? So let's start with the bleak part. I think there are real reasons to be concerned right now that we're seeing things that we've really never seen. I worry about the extent to which our public schools can survive this level of political polarization, that this election season, you really did see 
rural Republicans turn against their own schools in a way that we haven't seen before. That really worries me. Okay, for the moment of hope. It's so important to remember just how unpopular a lot of this stuff is with the general public. That there were, you know, there were candidates who ran across the country and went all in on school privatization and culture war stuff, and they lost. They made it the center of their campaign in places like Michigan and Wisconsin. And these are in the heartland too, right? And so that gives me hope. And then, you know, when every, the more extreme these guys get and the more extreme the proposals get well the more they're peeling off supporters people who may maybe they went along with the critical race theory witch hunt but you know litter boxes are a step too far and so you know we have to be mindful that our biggest uh, the thing that's most important for us to do right now is to keep building our coalition there are people who are waking up right now that maybe never saw themselves as having to defend public education and now they're asking what can i do how can i help before it's too late so we have an immense organizing challenge before us but i do see some hopeful signs that people are waking up and a lot of it is due to the work of people like you jessica piper Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate you. And thank you for leaving us that bit of hope at the end because it, it is demoralizing. It is a fight. It's every day, wake up and start again. And I'm so thankful for you. A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door was absolutely what I needed to read at this moment. I listened to your podcast, have you heard every single week. Um, and the banter between you and Jack is fantastic. Um, like I told you, you can let Jack know that I thought you just wrote that entire book because the narrator was female and I absolutely <laughs> adored it. I know he gives you lots of trouble every single week. Yeah. He does, and <laughs> I, I let him know that immediately. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me and I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Jessica. I want to thank Jennifer so much for showing up and talking to us about school privatization and charters and vouchers and what exactly is going on. And I'm also so thankful that she left us on a high note. I mean, things are bleak. Things are tough, especially in red states like Missouri. And I see the same thing happening in Iowa and Nebraska and Oklahoma. So I'm glad to know it's not just a red state issue. But it's also nice to know how we can fight back, how we can meet this challenge where it's happening. And that's through organization. That's through getting groups of people together in your own community and understanding what is going on, reading the legislation, and then writing, calling, emailing. And the most important part, if at all possible, showing up. We can fight back. We can do it. We just have to do it together. Thanks for listening, and I can't wait to see you again next week. Dirt Road Democrat is brought to you by the Heartland Pod, a mid-map media production. Producers are Adam Summer, Rachel Parker, and Sean Dillon. Theme music by Adam Summer. Host, Jessica Piper. Learn more at heartlandpod.com. Thank you.